0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
0: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 495.
1: I didn't know books could be great. Like everything that I was given to read at school was really boring. It was like a textbook that like covered 300 years of stuff that I couldn't relate to. And it was so, so boring.
0: It's easily one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves. The harder you work, the better you'll do. But a lot of the time, working harder doesn't yield better results. It just leaves us exhausted. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown. This is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. And if you want to get further in life faster than most, you might want to take up the habit of reading with consistency and intention. My goal is that this podcast helps you do exactly that. This week, we're going to be interviewing the author of a book called The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. His name is Eduardo Briseño. And I'll be asking Eduardo to share about what he means when he says we don't learn by doing, we learn while doing, how we can leverage our responses to different kinds of mistakes to improve learning and performance, common misconceptions about learning and a growth mindset, and much, much more. In just about a week and a half, members of my Read to Lead community and I are going to be getting together to discuss a book you're going to be hearing more about in the future called Leadership is Overrated, How the Navy SEALs and Successful Businesses Create Self-Leading Teams That Win. Thursday, October 12th, we're gathering to discuss that book. Many are reading it now. And in fact, the authors of the book, Chris Mefford and Kyle Bucket, will be joining us for that discussion. Again, that's Thursday, October 12th. The following Tuesday, then my interview with the authors releases as episode 498. I encourage you to pick up a copy of Leadership is Overrated and join us for our discussion on October the 12th. To find out more about how to be a part of that, you need to be on my mailing list. You can sign up for that at readtoleadpodcast.com just fill out the form in the upper right with your name and email address another way is to simply join the read to lead community where right now your first 14 days are free our book club meeting is in 11 days so that means you could actually attend the book club session with the authors of leadership is overrated for free and then cancel your subscription after that if you if you want but it's just 9 bucks a month if you choose to stay, and we'd love to have you in the community. To find out more about that, go to jeffbrown.me. Eduardo Brasenio is a global keynote speaker and facilitator who guides many of the world's leading companies in cultivating growth mindset cultures. He's a Pajera Aspen Fellow, a member of the Aspen Institute's Global Leadership Network, and an inductee in the Happiness Hall of Fame. For over a decade, he was the CEO of Mindset Works, the pioneer in growth mindset development. His new book is called The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. Well, Eduardo, I am excited to have you on. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Really looking forward to this. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you, Jeff. I first want to ask you, uh, because they are the first names you mentioned in the dedication about mom and dad
1: my uh, mom and dad were and are so dedicated to my sister and me they really made my sister and me their highest priority and I am so grateful for that. Uh, so things have turned out like none of us expected. I, I mean, my family has been in Venezuela for many, many generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can trace it back to the 1700s. Uh, and so I, everybody I knew always was always there. And all of a sudden, we we ended up uh, living in Tulsa, Oklahoma when I was in high school. And that led to different things for me and for them. And it's been an interesting journey. But uh, I've really appreciated their uh, their dedication to my sister and me. So you were in Venezuela until high school? Is that right? Yeah, I was 16 years old when my father was transferred for his work. And so the family moved for two years there. And then they went back to Venezuela, my my parents and my sister. At 16, I would imagine
0: that could have been a really tough transition.
1: It was tough in some ways, but also like my childhood was tough for me and my Mm -hmm. adolescence. uh, I wasn't particularly happy or excited. And so I I was excited Mm -hmm. about the change. And, uh, and it was an adventure that ended up you know, being great, uh, but, but it was different, def- definitely challenging.
0: Well, when anyone who listens to this show hears the word mindset, their brain automatically defaults to Carol Dweck and her work. And I couldn't help but notice that on the front of Eduardo's book are these words, an essential read, I wholeheartedly recommend it, Carol Dweck. So <laughs> pretty great endorsement, pretty great words there from Carol. I'd love for you to describe uh, some of the work you do for organizations. How do you help them exactly in the
1: area of mindset? Absolutely. And and yes, Carol has been an incredible mentor. I met her in 2007 when I was in grad school, and she's been an amazing mentor and supporter and sponsor for me ever since. Mm. So... In my journey, I we started an organization called Mindset Works that that is uh, devoted to helping schools develop growth mindset cultures and curricula mm-hmm. and kind of educator training resources. And in that journey, I, I started getting more and more inquiries from both kind of educational institutions and more and more businesses to help them foster a growth mindset culture, a culture of learning. And so that's because i have a business background i used to do uh, investment banking and venture capital before before that i have devoted myself more and more and more to helping what's increasingly more like senior leaders in in large companies like global companies Mm -hmm. um foster growth mindset cultures you know people are interested in in fostering cultures where people learn with each other and develop their skills. Uh, which leads to higher performance, right? And there's a lot of kind of insights that I think the world has learned from Carol's work and from Carol's book, Mindset. And and Microsoft has done a great, fantastic job at transforming their culture in different dimensions. One of them is growth mindset. And that's gotten other people curious about, hey, how can we... Develop a culture where we're learning with each other more, improving more, innovating more. And so, what I do is, I very often companies hire me to do keynotes or workshops to introduce a growth mindset and key learning strategies to their leaders or their staff. And then they have people inside of the organizations who have other supports and systems, which I can also kind of consult with and and help mm-hmm. them, so that they they are creating the the understanding of mindset. Because there's a lot of a lot of um Confusion about it, um, so that there, there, there's, there's clarity and alignment, but then also supports and systems to make uh, learning the easy default.
0: I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but, but I'm, I'm a three, an achiever, so I was particularly curious when I saw the title, the performance paradox. I thought, well, gee, I wonder what that is. So, so define uh, what that is for those listening, and and maybe areas in in in
1: work and life where we could be fooled by by this. Yeah. The performance paradox is the counterintuitive reality that if we focus only on performing, our performance suffers. And so for achievers like you, Jeff, and you know, I also like got into the habit of wanting to achieve so much, which is not a bad thing. But what, what we, the trap that we get into is that we, we get into the trap of wanting to, to do everything as like flawlessly as possible all the time to try to minimize mistakes all the time. So for example, in school students, all the student work might be graded and both kind of teachers and students might be thinking that the ideal is for students to get a hundred on everything they're doing all the time, which means that they're not making mistakes, which means that they're working on the things they already know how to do. Versus in order to improve, we have to work on things we don't know or things that are beyond our level of mastery, which means we're going to be making a lot of mistakes. And that's how we learn. That's we, we learn from examining those mistakes and figuring out what can I learn from this mistake? What can I do better? That's what Olympic gold medalists do every day. Even though they're the best in the world, they're trying something beyond what they can do, not doing it flawlessly and getting feedback from where they're missing and, and adjusting so that they can become even better. Because of our present bias, we try to reap immediate rewards in our achievement. And that gives, keeps us stagnant, if that's all we do, from achieving even more and increasing our, our skills over time.
0: You know, when it comes to reading in particular, and of course, that's, that's my jam, uh, I find that many people don't read, which is one of the reasons why I started this podcast to begin with. Uh, and, and I find that people don't read because they don't want to learn. And the reason they don't want to learn is because that learning means admitting you don't know something, which we're taught to avoid. And the other reason people don't want to read is because if a book is going to help you get somewhere you've been unable to get to on your own, it means changing your mind about something. And changing your mind about something means admitting you were wrong about something. So learning, admitting you don't know something, and changing your mind about something, admitting you were wrong, are two things that make us very uncomfortable. I say all that to ask, what's your what's your take on that? Do you have an opinion on, on any of that?
1: Well, I I agree with you. I think what you've described is... The kind of psychological effects of when we tend to be more in a fixed mindset, right? So, uh, especially for achievers like you, yeah. um, often if, if, if we like people who did really well in school, um, who got a lot of like high grades, they were often praised for being smart. Um, and and then we get the sense that the reason people succeed or are good at things is because you have something in you, you are smart, and we we tend to get a fixed mindset from that. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we tend to see intelligence as something that people either have or don't have. And so mm-hmm. then we want to prove rather than improve. Like you said, we don't want to sh- like discover that we can change our thinking or that we can become better. I think I have a hypothesis and another reason, too, that people don't like to read. And it was true for me. I also didn't read at all until like my late, late 20s, pretty much in, t- in terms of choosing a book and picking it up. Yeah. And the reason, a big reason for me was that I didn't know books could be great. Like everything that I was given to read at school was really boring. It was like a textbook that like covered 300 years of stuff that I couldn't relate to. And it was just so, so boring. My wife was a reading teacher. She now is a professor of education that teaches teaches teachers how to teach kids how to read. And in just in being in relationship with her and and discovering books like Harry Potter or Fall of Giants, books that were incredible. I realized, wow, like books can, can add so, so much, not just learning, but also joy to my life. And now reading is a, a bit, an important part of my life. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. I so identified with that. For me,
0: for the entirety of my 20s, I did not realize books could be great. I love how you said that. It wasn't until my early 30s where that changed for me. And, and that led to things like we're doing right here, right now. Very, very well said. And I love that, that statement you made of we want to prove rather than improve. That is so powerful. I want to make sure people uh, remember that. Uh, what does it look like for us as, as individuals? i want going to talk about that part of the book for supplying this to us to integrate the learning zone, you call it, into our work and our life.
1: Yeah, so, one of the things that I, I learned in working with Carol and Lisa Blackwell and, and other experts, I, I got the great pleasure to to meet um, Anders Erickson, who who coined the term deliberate practice, and Angel mm-hmm. Duckworth, is that. So, a growth mindset is the belief that we can change; that our abilities or qualities are malleable. That is a really powerful thing, and it is necessary for us to be motivated and effective learners. But it is not sufficient. Mm-hmm. In, we need to not only believe that we can change, but also we need to understand how to change and how to how to improve, how to learn, and the foundation of that 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 I have found has been really helpful to lots of people is to understand the distinction between learning and performing which which was not something that I was clear on until mm-hmm. like I learned from all these folks and so to to understand that we can look at people who are fantastic at what they do like who are the best in the world very very skilled like a fantastic uh, professional athlete for example what we see is when they're performing when they are doing the things they know best trying to minimize mistakes when they're doing a championship you know playing a game in a championship or in a final they're trying to minimize mistakes if they're having trouble with a particular move they're going to avoid that move during that match Mm -hmm. but then and so we tend to think that the reason they become so good is because they spend a lot of hours Doing that thing, like if they're a fantastic tennis player, they spend ten thousand hours playing tennis. And if you look at the research, that's not how people become great. The, the, the people become great by doing something very different from what we see. So after the game, they'll go to their coach and they'll say coach, I have to work on this move that I was avoiding during the game. Now I have to do it all the time. I just want to isolate that, you know, and work on that and and get feedback from each iteration and and adjust and adjust. And it is the time that they spend with their coach, which I call the learning zone. That's when we're, when our goal is to improve and we're using strategies to improve Um, that time that we spend in the learning zone is what allows us to improve our skills and improve our performance zone, and improve our results. And so Mm. in in something like sports or the performance arts, people, uh, they have the privilege of separating these two zones and spending a good amount of time on the learning zone, doing deliberate practice. Mm. But for most of us in our jobs that, that involve a lot of things, like knowledge work, we have a lot of things to do. I think the greatest opportunity is not to block large time for the learning zone, but rather to integrate the two, like you're saying, and so to shift the way we do things so that we do things not only with the sole goal of getting things done, but of getting things done while also improving along the way. And, and, you know, we can talk about how we do that, but, but that is the biggest opportunity because we are often just worried about getting things done that keeps Mm. us stagnant. And there are ways that we can do that in a way that's going to grow, increase our skills and increase our performance. Yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's talk a bit about, Eduardo, about what engaging in, in that
0: might look like on a daily basis. And, and sort of related to that, this, this thing you talk about, I think you say, look, we don't learn by doing, we learn while doing.
1: Yeah, there's, there's this common phrase of learning by doing, which I think is confusing because it it would imply that if you want to learn tennis, you just play tennis and then you'll get better. And that's confusing, right? But the people who are fantastic at learning by doing, they understand that it involves doing in a different way. And so I like to use the term learning while doing, which means that we can be deliberate about learning while we do, but it's not just by doing that we get better. Uh, and so the first thing is we need to change something like often people are doing the same thing in the same way every day and without change there cannot be improvement we sometimes like the idea of getting better but we don't like the idea of change and if we're the same now than we used to be like if we're doing things in the same way there's no way we're gonna be better in fact the world has changed and we haven't so we've probably become less effective so first is like i would ask people like are you always tweak, at least tweaking something, changing something about what you're doing, going into something you haven't done before. So taking challenges, doing something you haven't done before, something that's going to require a higher level of skills or new skills is something that gives us an opportunity to learn those skills along the way, which often we can do by either doing research, like, you know, internet searches to understand, like, what are strategies that I can use to do this new thing? Or we can um, ask our peers or our colleagues or people who have done these types of things for their ideas We can read, you know, my fantastic, uh, loving strategies. We can experiment. So those are kind of some of the things that are different than just doing and getting things done. Uh, a, A huge, super powerful strategy is soliciting feedback frequently from different people. So at least Mm -hmm. a few times a week, soliciting feedback on what we're doing and what our work is so that we can learn from how things are landing with other people. We're social beings. So a lot of what we're trying to do is have an impact on other people. And so Mm -hmm. by uncovering what people are thinking, how what we're doing is affecting them, we can learn and improve.
0: We do also need to be a little bit careful, don't we? we? We can... Execute on on many of those things you talked about, research and reading and, and and
1: other things. In lieu of taking actual action, if we're not careful, right? Absolutely, the learning, the performance zone is critical. That's how we get yeah. things done. That's how we impact other people. And part of why we engage in learning is to increase our performance. And it's funny, like when I when I talk about these two zones, most people realize, oh, I'm stuck in chronic performance. I could use more learning. But some people say. I'm realizing that I'm stuck in learning and I need to more learn, more performance zone in my life in order to get results. And both are really, really important. Yeah. I want to talk about mistakes. How, how can we leverage our response to, to different
0: kinds of mistakes to improve uh, learning and performance and, and realize that you know, mistakes, assuming they're not, I guess, malicious or sloppy, uh, are not necessarily a bad thing, right?
1: mistakes are not a bad thing, except they do lower performance. Like if you look at a fantastic athlete playing an incredible match, it's when they make few mistakes that they can win, right? And be the mm-hmm. best in the world. And sure. so we tend to have this conflicting relationship with mistakes where we know that they can be helpful for learning and we know that they can hurt performance. And that can lead to just confusion internally and also confusion with each other. And so I think it's helpful to to differentiate different kinds of mistakes. But first, why are mistakes so powerful? Um, Mistakes are the main way that we can drive our neuroplasticity, especially after we're in our mid-20s. The the way that the brain changes. So, So how we think and our intelligence is based on how our neurons connect with each other. And a thought is a network of neurons firing together. And so if we want to change our thinking, change our intelligence, change our thoughts, we need to change our neural wiring. And and changing neural wiring is called kind of neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change. And that neuroplasticity is triggered when the brain makes a prediction that turns out to be wrong. You know, we, we expect something to happen and we're surprised and we pay attention and we think about kind of what is the solution to this. We stick with it. And, and that's when we can, we can rewire our brain. It's one of the main ways is the way that we can do it proactively. And so Mm -hmm. that's how powerful mistakes are is it really, really critical to our improvement. Um, but again, they can lower performance. So Mm -hmm. I think we can talk, we can think about different kinds of mistakes. One is the stretch mistakes, which is when we are, doing things incorrectly because we're taking on a challenge beyond what we can do. So we can't expect to do it perfectly. It's like, you know, a tennis player working on their drop shot that they're having trouble with and a particular part of the court particular speed. Um, they, they're going to expect to make lots of mistakes. If it goes too much to the left, they're going to adjust to a little bit to the right and that's how they get better. Right. Um, so we want to do these, take these challenges in ways that are not gonna create significant damage, right? We wanna do this uh, when the mistakes are not gonna have significant consequences. The the mistakes that could have significant consequences and could bring us down and hurt other people, those are called the, the high stakes mistakes. And those are mistakes that we want to minimize, we want to avoid. So when when the stakes are high, we want to shift to our performance zone and do what we know works and what we think works best. Third, there's the sloppy mistakes, which you mentioned, is when we do something that we should have known better, we've learned this lesson before, you you ask kind of how do we respond to mistakes. Uh, anytime we make a mistake, we can think about what le- what is the root cause of this mistake and how could I avoid it in the future? If it's something important, I mean, and there's always the, the opportunity for that question. Sometimes... Mistakes are not important. They're, they can be a source of laughter and joy. Like, you know, if I spill something on myself and it's, I'm home, like it it can, it can, I think mistakes and, and, and the imperfection of humanity can bring us kind of happiness if we, if we roll with it, if we show it to our loved ones or our friends and like laugh with it. But when we're trying to learn from mistakes, we need to get to the root cause and figure out how to avoid this in the future and so for example if we are in in a customer support relationship and and there's somebody a customer has a problem often we try to solve the customer's problem but we don't try to figure out what is the system change that i need to make so that a future customer doesn't have the same problem right so we need to really get to the root cause and the fourth kind of mistake is the aha moment mistake which is when we do something as we intended but we realized it was the wrong thing to do. And those are really precious. We need to like think about them, uh, see them as precious learning opportunities. Um, and it's it's harder to elicit them proactively like the stretch mistakes, but when they happen, we need to treasure them. And we can uncover more of them by soliciting feedback more. When we solicit feedback, we're surprised by what other people notice that we don't notice and, and that can create aha moments. But I think the key here is that we what we can do proactively is elicit more stretch mistakes, not mm-hmm. by trying to do things incorrectly, but by trying to do things that are challenging beyond what we
0: can do. As someone who, when he was much younger in school, lettered in tennis, I appreciate the, the tennis analogies, examples, I should say. It's uh, helpful. And when
1: I used to play tennis or the guitar, like, if I, I never engaged in effective practice. I just tried to play <laughs> in the guitar. I t- tried to play songs. In tennis, I just yeah. played games. And yeah. I didn't realize you know, what it actually took to get better.
0: Same here. I've, 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 I've done both of those things. Uh, tennis a little better than, than guitar, but uh, I, I totally hear where you're coming from. Uh, let's talk about the myths. Uh, a lot of people have misconceptions, I guess, maybe even a better word that, that folks have surrounding these topics specific to learning and, and, and growth mindset.
1: So There's a lot. And that's because we haven't like in schools have never been tasked with teaching kids how to learn. And and so that it has never been a goal. And so it, it it tends to not be something that we were taught. Like, we, you know, I wasn't taught the distinction between the learning zone and the performance zone. And so one misconception, one very big misconception is that hard work is the key. And the, the number of hours that you spend doing an activity is the key to get better at that activity. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hard work, I mean, hard work is important, but there's two different kinds of hard work. There's hard work to perform and execute the performance zone and hard work to improve in the learning zone. And both of them are important. So that's one myth around growth mindset. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions around what it is. Like when I ask people, I often stand start my keynotes or workshops when people have done work on growth mindset before. I start by asking them in my own words, what does growth mindset mean? And people write a lot of things down, like being open-minded or working hard or persevering. And those things are not growth mindset. A growth mindset is a, pers- a perspective about the nature of human beings, is the, the perspective that we can change, that our abilities can change. And and, and why that matters, why it affects our behaviors um, is, is something that is important. Because if we're trying to build growth mindset cultures, it, it's really hard to do it if we're not clear, that we have to work. Not only on the behaviors, but also on the belief. These, two, these mm-hmm. things reinforce each other because if we, if we just encourage people, for example, to, uh, to solicit feedback, but they're in a fixed mindset, they believe that people are either naturals or not, then soliciting feedback doesn't feel good, right? And, and mm-hmm. it, it, it it's, it's, it, there's a conflict there. So we have to work on the belief and, and the behaviors as well. There's, there's misconceptions around uh, in growth mindset and how to, how to foster a growth mindset? Sometimes people equate that with just praising effort, and there are a couple of different kind of ways that that can be problematic. Uh, first, we don't we don't tend to differentiate effort from to learn from effort to perform. Sometimes people are working hard, but not making progress. And because they're working hard, we appreciate it. And so we just praise effort, but we don't help them see that their hard work is not leading to results, rather than help them reflect on, okay, if my hard work right now is not leading to progress, what can I do differently and help them reflect on that? There are lots of misconceptions around learning. Like uh, we tend to overestimate how much we will remember something and mm-hmm. so I think, you know, I love the question you often ask in your podcast, your guest about you kind know, of personal knowledge management systems, because we tend to think that if we just read something, for example, we'll just remember it. We tend to overestimate how much we'll remember. Mm-hmm. So we need to be deliberate about what are the effective strategies that if I want to know something long-term, you know, what do I do other than just read, for example? Uh, so so lots of things to learn from learning science. Uh, and that's the the exciting thing is that there are a lot of things to learn <laughs> yeah. and that all of them can make us. Mm-hmm. Um, more effective and, and, and more able to better pursue our goals, whether professional or personal.
0: The way I think of it, the enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge. It's, it's the thinking. You've learned something because you spent a lot of time reading or thinking about it. Uh, unless you've written it down, good luck. <laughs> to me, if, if you're thinking without writing, you only think you're thinking.
1: Yeah. And, and you, you made this distinction between kind of reading and writing and, and a difference between that is re- reading is recognition. Like when we listen to something or read something, we're recognizing it. Um, when we write something uh, or we say something, we are generating it and generating something is a much more effective, um, learning strategy that helps us remember a lot better. Uh, that's why, you know, flashcards, like digital flashcards or paper flashcards are so powerful is because mm. We, we're not reading something and remembering it th- from recognition. We're actually generating that from our mind and then checking whether our generation was correct or not. Um, and that, that's just a much more effective strategy, just as an example. And as you were talking earlier, you reminded me of someone in my life who
0: relates how much time they spent working on something with how valuable it then is. And, and when we're working on projects together, they're always quick to tell me how long it took, how many hours or days they spent on it, as if I'm supposed to go, wow. Uh, when in my mind, I'm like, well, you need to get to a point where that's not the goal. I would be more impressed if rather than hours, it took minutes and I wouldn't value it any less. I'd value it more.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. We all have What psychologists call a hierarchy of goals. And sometimes we get lost in mid level or low level goals. So if I have the goal of working on whatever a paper, I might get focused on just executing or, or working on that paper and forget why am I doing this in the first place? Like, and asking why a few times and then asking the question of how can I get better at that higher level goal? How can I achieve that better? And. And the, the answer might, might be doing something other than what I'm focused on and spending too much time on right now. Now, before anyone thinks I'm about to throw Eduardo under
0: the bus, he does talk about this in the book. So this is fair game. <laughs> talk about, Eduardo, some of your own missteps as a leader and, and what,
1: what you feel a learning organization truly looks like. Sure. I have gotten trapped in chronic performance as an individual. And then as a leader, when I first co-founded uh, Mindset Works, uh, and I served as CEO, CEO for over a decade, I made the mistake that I just, I was not clear at the time of the difference between learning and performing. Mm-hmm. And I had spent time in venture capital. I had seen how investors can have a short-term horizon and put a lot of pressure to scale quickly. And in growth mindset at the time nobody had heard of growth mindset before. And I saw this as a life calling and as a marathon rather than a sprint. I thought like mm. if we if we just hire a lot of salespeople, I don't think that people had growth mindset as a priority. I thought we'd just spend, you know, waste a lot of money. And so I decided that we would bootstrap the company mm. uh, and so not raise money and just grow from internally generated funds. And I, and we did that. And I saw so for the first year, like I didn't get paid, you know, it was just like bootstrapping, but starting very small. And the mistake that I made is that I thought we would just figure everything out along the way. I had never been an entrepreneur. I had never been in the K to 12 education sector, but I thought, okay, we're just going to work really hard and figure it out along the way. And I didn't put in place structures for learning, right? I didn't I didn't surround myself enough from people who had done similar things before who could teach me like how school districts work and how sales work and how to like develop products that really serve uh, customer needs. Uh, And there's a lot of that I could have learned from other people. And also because we're bootstrapping, we had a lot of work to do. So we, we, we did have like early adopters and we took on too many of them. So we ended up like just solving each individual customer's problems and not, not spending enough time on systems and on uh, with kind of some, we're just we were stuck in chronic performance rather than you know engaging in the learning zone to figure out you know how to do things better over time, uh, and so that that took some time a couple of years to to realize until you know we we were able to 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 get some funding so that we could put in place some structures for us to engage you know in the learning zone the performance zone so that is what a learning organization is an organization where people go to work clear that. They want to perform and make an impact, but they also want to learn. And part of that is they want to continue to evolve themselves and in collaboration with each other. And so people share with each other what they're working to improve and how they can support each other, how they can give each other feedback to improve at those things. Um, And that is Mm -hmm. part of the purpose of the work. And there's also systems and structures not only to perform, but also to make lear- everyday learning the easy default. So whether it is uh, items in weekly agendas that are not just performance oriented, but also learning oriented in our performance management systems, there might be structures to facilitate uh, frequent conversations between people where people can learn with each other. Um, and, and all of that enables us not just to learn, but also to, to perform better.
0: And another part of what I'm hearing you say, I think Eduardo is is the importance of applying the learning zone not just to tasks but also to relationships, right?
1: Absolutely. In figuring out what are other people's preferences um and also just in in having more transparency with each other, we can both learn better and perform better and if we just share our thinking with each other in terms of what what am I doing that is helpful that is making our collaboration easier. What am I doing that's creating some tension or some problems? And what might be solutions to that? And having more open and transparent conversations Mm -hmm. and and getting to know each other better. Hey, like what, you know, trying to understand why, you know, we've developed the preferences and the beliefs, what is our history, being self-disclosing with each other builds trust. It builds a sense of belonging. And that is a foundation for us to collaborate both kind of toward learning and toward performing. The other thing I would say in a learning organization is the importance of leadership and and the things that leaders need to do in order to promote uh, learning, aside from putting in place like systems and habits are not just kind of putting in place, but really engaging people in creating systems and habits for learning and performing. There's also the role of kind of framing or setting the stage of like, what are our values? What are the behaviors that we desire? And why are those important? And then also modeling. Sometimes leaders feel like they need to be know-it-alls or, you know, they need to be sure of themselves and they need to um, have the answers. Even if they're great learners on their own, they might be great readers uh, but they're doing the learning when other people aren't watching. And so, you know, when other people are watching, we need to kind of solicit feedback. We need to share what we're working on. We need to share what we're learning along the way, the mistakes we're making and and communicating that it is these behaviors that strengthen our organization that make us more likely to succeed. I spent more than my
0: fair share of years in leadership roles thinking that I was the person who needed to have all the answers and have it all together. And then finally, my my last mentor, the last person I worked for until about 10 years ago, did a fantastic job of modeling learning behaviors. And that's when I really got into looking at what he was doing and reading books and, and realizing that there are we talked about earlier, great books out there, not just the boring ones. I just hadn't found the the right ones uh, yet. Well, uh, what haven't I asked about, Eduardo, that that you want to make sure we walk away with? I know we haven't really delved into the part three, which gets into sort of the global impact of all this. Maybe it's something from that section of the book or or something else.
1: Yeah. I mean, that can be one. One key thing that I think is important is that the learning zone. Changes not only the destination, but also the journey. It makes the journey of life and work more fun, more fulfilling, more rich. Um, when we are engaging and learning all the time, we, we experience less anxiety and symptoms of depression because when we struggle, we don't take those as permanent struggles, things that we won't be able to overcome, but we understand it as part of a process and an opportunity for us to learn from the struggle and to adjust and to navigate life and which also equips us to drive change. You know, we want to, in our work, we often want to drive change. So it makes us feel like a greater sense of agency because we in fact have greater agency, greater ability to affect change. It also deepens our relationships. Like we talked about, when we're more curious about each other, we ask more questions, we listen better, we ask more follow-up questions. And so that that leads us to better understand each other and form bond, bonds with each other. Uh, so that makes life better as well. And just the 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 process of, exploration discovery we experience more awe and that brings a level of richness to our lives that is not just about the results that we achieve I'm going to make this a little tough for you I think
0: this next question with regard to books I didn't I didn't prep you for this but I'm going to take Carol Dweck off the table I'm going to take Angela Duckworth off the table and grit I'm going to take Anders Ericsson off the table. <laughs> you may not have been expecting that. I don't know. But if I were to take those, I mean, I know you, you you work closely with those folks and I highly recommend everything that every one of those people have written. Totally. And I'm sure you do too. But apart from those people, what would be some books that, that have impacted you, let's say?
1: Absolutely. And I would agree with you that those are amazing people to <laughs> learn from. Um, a, a huge book that was life-changing for me was uh, The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. Mm. I uh, was in a very dark period of my life before I went to grad school. And I had to make a lot of changes. I didn't know what changes I needed to make. Uh, But that's when Audible first started Mm. um, having books. And one of the books that they promoted uh, in their homepage was The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. And it taught me I, I, up to that point, I had thought that happiness was a function of my circumstances of, so I had to kind of achieve certain things. And if I achieve those goals, then I would be happy. And what I realized is that happiness is an emotion that we can generate from within ourselves. Uh, It is, you know, if we, I, I start each day with gratitude for the things that are most important for me, for example, and before I check email, before I like text social media, before I let the External world in, I remind myself, you know, of the life, health, love, and peace that there is in my life and that there is in the world. Because otherwise, my attention tends to go, or everybody's attention tends to go a little bit more to the negative than to the positive. And so, what are the proactive things that I'm doing uh, to to generate positive emotions within me? It also gave me permission to seek happiness. You know, mm-hmm. I I don't know why, like I thought wow. that that was selfish, or I, I don't know, but like. It was clear to me, what resonated was that it really as a central goal uh, is something that that makes sense to me. And one of the ways that I generate happiness, right, is by trying to make a contribution to other people. So that was absolutely life-changing. And then I would also say, like, there's there's a lot of books that have uncovered to me how amazing books can be, you know, and, and I mentioned a couple of them before. It's like the harry potter series i man i wish i had read anything like that when i was growing up and even as an adult like i just enjoyed them so much fall of giants uh, and just opened a window into historical fiction that i think is so delightful to learn from and 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 i learned in books like that what before When I went to school, I, I learned history from trying to learn like 300 years into one book rather than like, let's look at the life of a person and what life could have been like then. So right now, and the last one I'll mention is right now I'm reading um, Clan of the Cave Bear, which takes place about 40,000 years ago. It's historical fiction, I think. Just a fantastic uh, picture of what life might have looked like when life was very different. We are still human, but it was the early days of humans.
0: I haven't read really any historical fiction. I need to to broaden my horizons there a little bit. Um, I love a good biography. You mentioned one or two, particularly Walter Isaacson's work, uh, Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin, A Life. And I just started listening to his new Elon Musk biography.
1: Yeah, I love Uh, biographies. I love that Da Vinci's, um, uh, Walter Isaacson's uh, biography in Da Vinci as well. I I mentioned it in my afterword in my book. But yeah, biographies are fantastic as well
0: yeah love those recommendations last question and and I'll, and I'll let you get on with your day um and you uh, hinted at this earlier, and that's the personal knowledge management related question. Four parts of note making mastery there's the collection or capture process, unlike what you were talking about earlier, you' know, don't want to just read and think you're going to remember it. it's got to be captured and I think most people understand that, but I think too, for most people, the capture process becomes this digital tool they use, and they put stuff there, and then they never refer to it ever again, right. Um, and I think the key to get past that is organizing it well, but also as new ideas come in, connecting those new ideas to existing ideas, because that's where serendipity happens and disparate ideas can crash into one another, right? And then there's the ability to then break that down and into your own words and your own thoughts and ideas and what that sparks in you. And then what comes out of that? What do you create from that? Pick any part of that process
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, or all of them. Uh, what's, what does that look like day to day for you?
1: First, in the, in the first step of collection, I think there's a difference be, for me between knowledge that I want to have as reference and refer to back later and knowledge that I want to have in my mind, uh, in my that I want to be able to bring out and think about at any point in time without referencing my knowledge management system. In the book, I talk about this concept of what I call air sense, which is our integrated knowledge and skills, because we, we tend to... In in this world, we tend to think that because we can search for anything online or we have artificial intelligence, then knowing things is less important. But actually, like knowing things is super important. It it enables us to make better decisions throughout the la- our day, to have better, com- more skilled conversations, and to act you know more in a more skilled way. And so. For the knowledge that I want to be able to generate in the moment, whenever I want to, I put that into a, a digital flashcard app that I use every day for it can it might be just one minute. Sometimes it might be like three minutes, but it doesn't take a lot of time. Um, and it makes a huge difference at Uh, remembering those things that I think are most important that I want to know. And then for the other knowledge that I want to have as reference, I use a second brain app. I I particularly use Rome research, but there's a lot of different options now on that. And just, yeah, using tagging, like, like you said, and kind of different systems within that to stay organized. Uh, the, The other thing I would say is that I capture not only what I hear or read Sometimes when the muses visit me, like sometimes, especially in the middle of the night or in the in the morning, sure. I have a, an idea that I'm excited about. It might be about something completely unrelated to what I'm working on right now. But if I can at all, I, I make either a quick note, jot, note on it or I might like spend a half hour just exploring this idea and writing about it, even though I'm not I'm not working on it at the moment. Um, and I think that's, that's really powerful. Um, I sometimes don't do anything at all with that. Sometimes I come back to it a few years later, or sometimes there's something in there that I can use in a project that inspires uh, something novel. So something innovative. So those are some of the, the practices that, that I have. And I, think all of us can continue to improve and I can continue to improve in all these things. I think it's an exciting time for yeah. uh, knowledge management, for personal knowledge management. So I love the question. I love kind of comparing those and learning from others in this
0: topic. <laughs> and you talked uh, a little bit about, you know, with the internet and, and, and AI, do we really need to bother with all this? And I think that's a key point to make because I think a lot of people think exactly that, that they don't need to. Well, uh, the name of Eduardo's book, again, uh, because you want to pick it up, is called The Performance Paradox. Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. I highly recommend it. Uh, You had some great advice for us today on all sorts of topics, Eduardo, not just mindset. I appreciate that. And the book recommendations as well. Thank you so much for taking the time and for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jeff, for having me. And thank you for all you do.
0: For a written summary of this episode and access the links and resources discussed with Eduardo, you can go to the show notes page for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 495 for episode 495. I also encourage you to check out the Snipped app, the Snipped podcast listening app, where transcripts are automatically created inside the app for this podcast. Transcripts that you can highlight and then have those highlights automatically exported to your notes app snipped the podcast listening app is a beautiful thing i love it and i highly encourage you to check it out especially if you love listening to podcasts that you learn from like this one remember too that on october 12th i'm going to be joined by about 100 members of the read to lead community and authors of the book leadership is overrated for a discussion of that book. If you don't have it, I encourage you to pick it up. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Again, it's called Leadership is Overrated by Kyle Bucket, Chris Mefford. We'll meet with them to discuss the book on Thursday afternoon, October 12th. It's part of a book club pilot program I'm running right now uh, for the next couple of months through the end of the year to see how that goes. If you want to be a part of this ongoing pilot program, join my mailing list. You can do that at readtoleadpodcast.com or join the Read to Lead community right now. It's free for the first 14 days and then $9 a month after that. That's at Jeff Brown. We'd love to have you for this first ever book club discussion with Chris and Kyle about Leadership is Overrated. And I'll be publishing an interview with them about the book later in the month of October as well. That will be episode 498 of the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for episode 495 of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for being here. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember leaders read and readers lead.